Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. In our second Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Vynamic's Jack Young and Oliver White to talk about what's trending now. Oliver, what headlines have you been following lately? As a avid listener of all news NHS, I have been waiting with bated breath for the outcome of the NHS pay body review. This body is the independent arm of the government which provides recommendations for pay rises to NHS workers and their Agenda for Change contract. This is obviously hugely topical at the moment given the rising cost of living and also given that last year the three-year pay deal that was previously agreed has run out. This should be announced prior to April when pay rises occur in theory but is still outstanding. In anticipation of what is suspected to be a recommendation for a 4 to 5% pay rise for all staff on Agenda for Change, of which the majority is nursing staff, and also considering that previously the government had hinted that they were, could only expect a 2 to 3% pay rise, this is a very tense moment with industrial action already being threatened. Nursing unions have come out and have asked for a inflation plus 5% pay rise, bringing what would be expected into that 14, 15, 16% region. And following this, the GMC, who represents doctors, have come out and on the basis of a pay restoration calculation, have asked for a 30% pay rise over five years. Now, it is important to note that the body I previously mentioned does not recommend pay for doctors, but given all of the threatened and ongoing industrial actions from a variety of public sector services, it is interesting to note that they have come out at the same time and there are whisperings of, for the first time in the UK's history, cross-industrial action. It's really worrying that we could get this cross-industry industrial action for our first time in our history. And I do feel it could be a real possibility. But the question is, how is this going to be paid for? Just going 1% above the 3%, not the 4 to 5% you mentioned, can cost up to a billion pounds. And I've also seen that they're already cutting back cancer care, which is a real concern. So obviously, we want to see clinicians, doctors, NHS staff paid what they deserve. But it does beg that question in terms of how it might be paid for. And I don't know if you've got any perspectives to share related to that. Very timely that you mentioned that, actually, Jack. In NHS England's last public board, this was exactly the conversation that played out between Amanda Pritchard and Julian Kelly, who are the NHS's chief exec and chief financial officers, respectively. And as you alluded to, they said that if no extra funding was available, these 
pay rises would come at a cost, so to speak, and those costs could involve diverting resources from elsewhere in in order to fund this. Obviously, there is a process to go through in order to to make those decisions, and I'm sure they would be well considered, but it's the reality of our nationalised health service. It will be interesting over the coming weeks to see what the respective policies of the frontrunners in the Conservative leadership race are and how potential future decisions made by our future Prime Minister could affect these conversations. Agreed, Oliver. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. And another story that I've been following recently, which is quite linked, relates to GPs or general practitioners and the fact that the workforce is experiencing really worrying workloads and it's amidst unprecedented staff shortages. Our listeners will know this is not a problem that's necessarily new and it has been around for some time. However, it seems to be getting significantly worse. To put this in perspective, a think tank in the UK published data recently showing the scale of these vacancies, with estimates suggesting a quarter of posts could be vacant in the next 10 years. GPs are also rushing through around a quarter of their appointments in five minutes or less. I think this can have a real impact on patient care if it's not resolved urgently. There are so many reasons for why we're experiencing this significant shortage with GPs. One being retention due to the workload pressures They often work part-time, retire early as a result, and there have been significant impacts on their physical and mental health, leading to clinician burnout. This has been driven by COVID and just a number of factors over time that's really placing so much strain on our GPs. And Oliver, I don't know if you've got any solutions or what you see that could potentially resolve some of those challenges to help relieve some of those workload pressures that we're currently seeing with the GPs. So I'm not sure if I would be so quick as to jump to claim that I have solutions, but I do think this is an issue definitely worth talking about and is an excellent example of a problem I think we're experiencing across the entire range of disciplines that support the NHS. Another now famous or infamous statistic that is often quoted is the NHS is carrying around 40,000 Uh, registered nursing vacancies i think unfortunately the honest answer is is that that there are no easy solutions there are a number of things that can help for example the utilization of technology improving infrastructure ensuring that clinicians have appropriate administrative support just to name a few But often, as we've seen with the recent advanced clinical practitioner and physician associate scandals in the Twitterverse, solutions that are proposed can bring problems of their own. Those references, of course, alluding to the fact that roles brought in to support medical workforces often bring with them a level of anxiety over the management of of these positions and we have recently seen examples of them perhaps being used inappropriately to cover these significant shortfalls. There's no easy solution to resolve this challenge but I think if we can place increased focus on prioritizing the health of our doctors we've seen that 
over 50% of experienced depression in recent times. So if we can introduce initiatives that focus on improving their health and well-being, I think that's a step in the right direction. I think another initiative that could be explored is promoting populational health and reducing inequalities to tackle significant public health priorities, including obesity, alcohol misuse, and coronary heart disease. I think we've shown great advancements in the population health area, and by reducing these inequalities in these areas, it will reduce the amount of strain that's placed on GPs, and hopefully that will help free up capacity to be able to focus on other priorities. I think the health and well-being point is excellently made. It is often difficult and and I do sympathize with leaders of our health service because it is difficult to ensure your staff are looked after, valued and are working sustainably in such a strained service. But if if this isn't done and how staff are managed and treated and given the appropriate support does not change in order to buck this trend, we are going to run into some real problems in not a long amount of time. Speaking of things that cause clinicians stress, the third story that I've been following for this month's podcast is the rise of COVID numbers, both in the wider population and patients in hospitals. This has also coincided with the monkeypox outbreak, which I'm sure most of us have heard about now. And finally, with a national incident declared as a result of polio found in the waters of London. These three incidents against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic we have all just lived through pose a really interesting question as to how we move forward under these circumstances. How are we going to deal with instances such as this as they arise? And what does the wider backdrop and impact of vaccination rates have to do with all of this? Yeah, well, I've been following this one closely as well. And it only seems like yesterday that we've been making great strides coming out of the pandemic but obviously we've got to learn the lessons from covid and apply it to these other outbreaks that we're seeing i think it's been driven by a lot of different things i think that the world opening back up again has played a role and that increase in travel the increasingly level of globalization we exist across the planet in terms of the migration patterns and happening and particularly post brexit I think there are lots of solutions that can be done to be able to alleviate and mitigate the risk of future pandemics, both within the ones you've called out here and others. I think we've got so many lessons learned that we can take from the COVID pandemic. We've got the test and trace. We've got all the surveillance systems that were put in place. I think those will be important to explore further. We learned that tracking down cases quickly and limiting the spread was really, really important. And there are specific things that can be taken for polio in particular, which is to encourage children to get vaccinated. All of the infrastructure we had built up over the COVID-19 pandemic that you mentioned, such as the the test sites, the distribution networks for the at-home testing, the functions within hospitals to be able to administer the vaccines that we all hoped as COVID numbers lowered would 
go away and we would be able to forget about them and, and move on is looking less and less likely. I suspect given that nationwide lockdowns are not sustainable, that we will be moving into a, a period where the new norm is dynamic management of these outbreaks as they arise and utilizing one or more of the various mechanisms we've developed to deal with them in the most appropriate way possible for that specific situation. But I think what is safe to say is that these aren't going away and we will have to continue to learn to, to live with them in the, I think, near and medium term. So whilst all of those various infectious diseases can sound very worrisome, uh, it is important to bear in mind that monkeypox numbers remain low, polio in the water, whilst it was declared a national incident, seems to be somewhat isolated. Jack, how do you think these infectious diseases and the resurgence that we're currently experiencing of, of COVID will play out on a, a global level? And, and how do you think we should prioritize addressing them? Well, as you called out, it's been declared at a national level, but the World Health Organization hasn't prioritized this as a, a key instant to you know, tackle on a more global level. And I think that is a cause for concern. Although the numbers are low, we learned through the COVID pandemic in particular that a global coordinated approach had amazing impacts. You know, we've got through vaccines in record times. And I just don't want this to be something that doesn't have dedicated attention from lots of different countries, because if you can get ahead of it early, you can make sure that the risk to population is heavily mitigated. So I do hope that there is close attention focused on these different outbreaks and that action is taken swiftly and on a global scale, if necessary, to protect public health. Jack and Oliver, these were some really interesting headlines that you've been following. And as always, we know that the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. And I look forward to hearing what we are talking about next month. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change, please visit trendinghealth.com.